Hi, welcome to the newest episode of The Adoption Files. I'm your host, Andy Stanley. Joining me for a new series as my co-host is Lynn Grubb. She uh, is known to many of you. She was my very first guest on the podcast. She's the author of the memoir, Hidden Identity. She works in the legal field. She's a volunteer as a CASA, and she can be found on social media as the adopted genealogist. Hi, Lynn. Hey, Andy. Thanks for having me back. Oh, thank you so much for uh, agreeing to do this with me. This is something that Lynn and I have been talking about this topic for some time. We are going to start a series of conversations about the ideas and attitudes that inform the adoption narrative and the almost cult-like belief that people have in that narrative. And you may ask, what does that have to do with adoption law and with adoptee access to our original documents? And that's a good question. I think we know that cultures make laws based on what the culture thinks is important. And if we want to change the way that adoption is practiced in this country, then we need to change how people think about adoption. So <laughs> we're going to, and we've been talking, I want Lynn to talk a little bit about how we, how we came up with this particular series that we want to do. Well, um, I seem to recall that we spent a lot of time listening to the podcast, a little bit culty, and then uh, we would discuss what we were thinking about that. And then we also both watched The Vow on HBO, which is about the cult Nexium and Keith Raniere, um, its leader. And then I think it progressed on from there. Um, I know I've been listening to the podcast by Mark Vicente, who's one of the whistleblowers um, for that same cult. So it just, it seemed to like snowball and it just, the deeper we got, the more we started seeing the parallels between, um, adoption and a lot of the cult characteristic. Yeah, it was, it was kind of funny because I've been interested for a long time because I grew up in an environment where there were a lot of cults and I knew people who uh, were followers of people like Jim Jones, and who passed away in in uh, Jonestown in Guyana, and so I I grew up around a lot of it, and I had been thinking, wow, there are so many parallels between the way people think about adoption and what I have seen, and then you and I got to talking about it, and then we discovered that there are other adoptees who also have made the connection. I want to start out though for people who may be thinking cults don't have anything at all to do with adoption. Cults are all like religion. They're all around just one person. The actual definition of cults from Oxford Dictionary, which I think is pretty credible, it, there are several definitions. One is a system of religious veneration and devotion directed towards a particular figure or object. And I think that you can find parallels to adoption in that because there are a lot of religious groups that are really pushing adoption as a, a redemptive act, something that they're doing as a response to a call from God. Then another definition is a relatively small group of people having religious beliefs or practices regarded by others as strange or sinister. And okay, that one might feel like a stretch, but there are other countries that do think our adoption practices are weird and sinister, especially when you look at the trafficking of children for adoption. And then... The one that really resonates for me is a misplaced or excessive admiration for a particular person or thing. And I really believe that the promotion of adoption to the point of ignoring evidence that the way we do it is bad, is it supports that idea that there's that excessive admiration for something that 
we can look at critically and go, this is not a good idea. And I know you sent me some really great resources about characteristics of, you know, behaviors that might be considered cult-like. Did you want to talk about some of those? Sure. Um, let me see if I can start off. Well, the description is that cults are high demand groups or movements. And I feel like adoption is a high demand movement. Um, and there's a lot of control within it. So I made a list here of some of the, the things I found online. Um, let me just start off. So although most cults focus on a living leader with a zealous unquestioning commitment toward them and adoption doesn't have a quote, actual human leader, Adoption is seen as an unquestioned good for society, so much so that policies and laws reflect this by promoting more adoption everywhere, even at Wendy's. When you're eating your hamburger, you can learn all about adoption. Well, and you went to a concert where adoption was front and center. That's right. I went to see Mark Schultz. He is a, an adoptee who's also a Christian, contemporary Christian singer. And I was disappointed to find out that the whole concert was a big fundraiser for an adoption agency. And the director of the agency got up in front of everyone and talked about how expensive adoption is, averaging $45,000 in adoption, and claimed that they could do it for half that. And a big part of the concert was talking about donating money, playing videos of families getting the call for their baby, uh, it was just very um, emotional, and even Mark had pictures of his kids. He's adopted two kids up on the screen and kept making jokes about add more zeros to your donation. So yeah, it was it was really tough to watch and take, and um, yeah, I, I kept I kept saying to my friend who was also adopted sitting next to me, I'm like, come on, Mark, get out of the fog, <laughs> which might be a little unfair, but. You know, we all, we, we all emerge from the fog at our own pace, but I was really disappointed that he does this kind of thing and he's done this kind of thing for years, raising money for adoption agencies. And I just, it was just hard. It was hard to be there. Well, and it's, it, it's an illustration of an aspect of thought reform or thought control that occurs in high control environments and that's cognitive dissonance or the need to suspend rational disbelief because when you have someone standing in front of a crowd and admitting that it costs $45,000 to purchase a child and we insist as a culture that this is not a financial transaction. This is not human trafficking. This is adoption. And so we justify the changing of, you know, the exchange of money for a person because we've accepted this narrative that it's a good, it's a good thing. And yeah, so that's one thing that I really see a lot of in adoption is that cognitive dissonance, not just around what it costs to purchase a person, but in so many other parts of how we talk about adoption. So you you had this whole list and you and I were laughing at some of the the idea is, you know, when you look at being preoccupied with making money, I know one of the notes you made was that agencies and attorneys make money off vulnerable women in financial crisis, and they make money off of adoptees as well. Yes, correct. Uh, my own agency just recently published the cradle where I was adopted from. That they were putting our non-ID on sale. They were going to give us a break. We were going to get a discount. So we could have our own information and, you know, that kind of stuff just really just burns me up. Like how much more money do I need to spend, you know, 
this agency already made money off of me, but they're going to keep on, you know, charging me for records and information. Yeah, but people are so entrenched in the idea that adoption is great and adoptees are lucky and adoptees are all well off. That also seems to be part of the narrative that they, they don't question why adoptees should have to pay considerably more money than non-adoptees to receive information that non-adoptees just take for granted. Absolutely true, Andy. And that's part of that suspension of rational disbelief. It's like there is this irrational need to believe so strongly in the adoption narrative that people seem to feel threatened by anything that questions it. Yes, and that's where it becomes a little culty. Well, and that's, you know, if you want to talk a little bit about number four on this list of what, you know, defines a cult is questioning doubt or dissent are discouraged or punished so as an adoptee when you hear that what do you think oh i think of gaslighting yeah i mean how many times have we been told just pretty much shut up sit down stop complaining you could have been in a dumpster um you know you were the lucky one because you got adopted and you know it's and, you know, if you're like me, very outspoken and have, you know, published blogs publicly about my adoption, you, you get a lot of haters coming to your blog and telling you, you know, you shouldn't say anything negative. My own best friend told me not to say anything negative about adoption because she, she really believes and she's adopted herself that it's our job to promote and encourage other people to adopt. And of course, I had to vehemently disagree with her on that topic. <laughs> well, and that brings up the indoctrination aspect. Yes. We are just as subject to the indoctrination into the whole idea of adoption as being great as anybody else, because we're receiving the same messages, if not more that tell us that we're never supposed to question it. Don't ever question it. It's always good. It's always positive. It's it's always the right thing to do. And it doesn't just start with us. It starts with our parents and our families. Yes. When you think about an actual cult, um, the people who are born into it are going to be the ones that are indoctrinated at a very young age and that would be true also for adoptees because most of us were adopted as infants you know the idea that it's always better for a child to be raised in an affluent home that somehow having money equates to um, better because that's not always true and it also implies that just because you don't have money that you somehow don't deserve to be a parent and the money factor is also something that's big in the cults there's yeah. always a big emphasis on the money and how they're going to raise the money and where's the money coming from and who controls the money yes and you look at a lot of these companies that are providing um, advertising materials and lookbooks and all of these services to prospective adoptive parents, they're almost always tied to a church or an adoption agency. A lot of the adoption agencies are tied to the churches. You just have that whole, and, and a lot of them are recruiting, you know, the agencies that are recruiting unwed mothers to give up their children they're all tied to each other and they're all making all this money and they're all promoting the adoption narrative. Yes. And some of them are coming through those pregnancy centers that, you know, test you and they supposedly tell you all your options, but they leave out the abortion piece usually. Well, and they also, I've looked into a lot of them. They also don't generally provide a means for a person to care for their own child 
It's like the minute you go through the doors, they start pressuring you because they have a couple who would love to take your child. So there's this deception that occurs all of the time as well. I And questioning, that's one of the things that, you know, we talk about adoptee silence and the fact that a lot of adoptees grow up with all kinds of questions that they don't feel safe asking. And anybody who spent any time around cult members knows that they don't like questions. A lot of the cult-like groups discourage their members from even answering questions or responding to questions or they'll actively tell them just walk away if somebody asks you a question I, and adoptees aren't supposed to ask questions there's there's this need for us to not critically assess adoption in order to maintain you know the story of adoption status quo which is adoption is wonderful and we can't think critically about it that's another cult um, characteristic do not think critically about it and we are given that message from a young age and you know when we ask questions to many of our parents they're uncomfortable and we can sense that you know so we take we change our behavior based on the indicators that our parents or the wider society gives back to us when we ask or, you know, in school, lots of personal questions or being bullied because, you know, you're adopted, your parents didn't want you type thing. You know, we learn, we're, we're learning each year and every time we have one of these experiences to just be quiet. And anytime you have a system that is not tolerant of questions, you've got a problem with the system. You know, it should be suspect. Any system that will not tolerate you asking questions of it, examining it, dissecting it, there's all kinds of red flags from the very beginning. As soon as you realize, I can't ask questions about this. And they're trying to dictate the kind of language you use around adoption. So like example, positive adoption language. We're not allowed to say the child was given away. We say the child was placed for adoption. So the whole language that is being taught to the greater adoption community of what is acceptable is also a little bit culty because we're trying to use, we're trying to make it more positive than it really is. Yeah. And people will scold you I've been scolded for saying things as an adoptee that are my truth for my experience with adoption. And people will be like, you shouldn't talk that way. Or that's not how you're supposed to talk about it. We say birth mother and birth father or sperm donor and egg donor. And I'm like, no, I'm sorry. That's my mom and my dad. You know, (laughs) it's regardless of whether I have a relationship with them or not, that's who they are. And you'll have people who will argue and argue and argue and argue with you. And then, you know, when you look at people saying that, well, adoption is, uh, is a reproductive choice. And I think, no, that's a parenting choice. It's not a reproductive choice. So people are constantly trying to police our language around how we deal with families in crisis and how we deal with adoption to the point where I I think adoptees are talking about the fact that it's time for us to come up with our own language to express our experience rather than have to rely on the language that's given to us by the adoption industry. Yeah, and that the whole adoption language that's okay and not okay, it makes me think about how we 
as adoptees have had our agency taken away from us from the very beginning. So we, we had no choice, right? We were, this is our circumstance. We didn't ask for it. Yet the state treats us differently. People in society think that we should talk a certain way about adoption. It's like we're constantly being policed. So I, it's hard. It's so hard to keep your agency or maintain your agency or try to get it back when you, you know, you start beginning to come out of the fog or speaking your truth or start blogging or podcasting online, there's so much pushback. And I think, again, that's the parallel to cult. Like sit down, be quiet. Don't talk about how you experience this. This is, you know, this is the adoption PR campaign. Get on, get with the program here. This is a positive situation. And you better just, you know, you better just keep speaking the party line or, you know, we're going to send you hate mail. I don't know. (laughs) Well, we're going to ostracize you. We're going to demean you. We're going to invalidate you. We're going to threaten you because more than one adoptee has received threatening messages for speaking against the dominant adoption narrative. I mean, I've been told, well, maybe you should just end things then if you're so unhappy about Yeah, I mean, that comes across as a threat, (laughs) you know, and people have have had their their comments in social media uh, copied and then distributed to groups that dox people for speaking out against adoption and the adoption narrative. It's one of the reasons I think it's important that we have these conversations, because if you are so entrenched in a dogma that tells you that it's okay to threaten people and to hate people and to attempt to destroy people for speaking about their own lived experience and for asking that we critically assess this whole adoption thing and that we stop treating adoptees as marginalized people. I can't even say citizens because so many of us aren't even citizens. It's just frightening. (laughs) The whole thing, it's just very problematic. And, you know, I look at another, it says, you know, leader dictates how members should look, act and feel. We're told how we should act. We're told how we should feel. We're told how we should talk. We're told how we should think. We're told how we should be in relationship with other people. They are told how we should view our own parents. Who's the real parents? Who should get all the credit, which we all know is the adoptive parents. We're not allowed to view our birth parents as our actual parents, like everybody else does. That goes against, that goes against the cult rules. Yes. And it's, I guess for me, I think of the adoption industry as being like the church of adoption. (laughs) (laughs) And you, you don't have to believe in God to be a member because the cult of adoption is just as strong among people who do not consider themselves believers. Like there are atheists who belong to the church of adoption. There are agnostics who belong to the church of adoption. This is, you know, they all worship at this altar of, you know, we're not throwing babies in dumpsters. We're not leaving them in to languish in orphanages. We're not leaving them to be abused and if you don't want us to keep doing this then you must want babies to be thrown in dumpsters you must want children to be abused you must want children to languish in orphanages which is one of the dumbest arguments i have ever heard yes because adoption um, is not the only solution to these problems correct and yet they're so so dedicated to this black and white thinking that characterizes a lot of cults too. It's good and evil, truth and lies. And there's one group 
or person who decides what determines good and evil, truth and lie. And there's no room to think outside of that dynamic. Absolutely. I mean, adoption is an unquestioned good in our society. Oh, yeah. All, most people believe that if a child is adopted, that is a better life. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's a very us versus them, which is another one of the things on their list. And to the to the degree where if you're an adoptee and you say, well, I didn't have it, you know, my adoptive parents were abusive or my adoptive parents were neglectful. Well, then, okay, you had a bad adoption experience, so you're not credible on this topic. But let's say you, you know, you had a pretty good adoptive family and they did the best that they could and and you have pretty good relationships with them and they've been fairly supportive of your questions and have been fairly supportive of you finding your families. I say fairly supportive because I still really haven't talked to more than maybe one or two adoptees whose parents were all on board. But if if you say anything about, yeah, my adoptive ex- family was is pretty cool. I love them, but I still wish I had known who my parents were. I wish I could have access to my birth certificate. I wish I had grown up knowing my brothers and sisters then you automatically have had a bad adoption experience because now you're saying negative things about adoption. So either you're a bad person or you had a bad experience. And that's the only way that these people can tolerate hearing any of this. Yeah. That's gaslighting as far as I'm concerned, because what does it matter what my personal experience was? when it comes to how I believe adoption could be improved to help, to help kids, it could be improved. Yeah. It does. It shouldn't necessarily matter what happened to me personally, when we can see all, all this, you know, corruption and these mothers who are being coerced and these agencies and these people in between adoption attorneys and agencies who, you know, they get paid to find birth mothers for um, relinquishment. And they lie to these mothers too and tell them that they're going to be able to be in an open adoption and promise them the moon until, you know, the ink's dry on the paper and then they find out the hard way that it's not true. Yeah. And then you have the even, you know, you have that other tragedy of mothers and families being promised that your child has found their forever home and you're, we're going to provide your child with everything they could possibly want in life. And then because of the nature of adoption, meaning that as soon as they sign those papers, they no longer have any legal right to even know what's happening to their child or where their child is, they can find out decades later that that forever family put the child up on one of these websites like second chance adoptions and gave the child away. Yeah. yeah, that makes me think of uh, Dr. Stephen Hassan's bite model. It's the bite model of um, for cults. And one of the, the it, bite stands for um, behaviors, information, and thought and information, I think. Emotions. Emotions. Behavior, information, thoughts, and emotions. And one that I was thinking of it as you were speaking is the access to information, the control of information is on the bite model list as a cult um, characteristic. And that is one of the biggest ones that you see in um, adoption in the United States. It's somebody else is controlling the flow of information. So even in quote, open adoptions, which we all know can close afterwards, Um, you're still not getting the full story. You're not getting the full information. Like you said, somebody could be, could rehome a child and how would the birth parents ever know? How would the original family ever know? Because the child's name's been changed. So that information flow is just cut off. And and, in our time, you know, the closed era, there was, 
our mothers never got any information on how we were doing. Yeah. And, you know, they still control the information even when we're adults. And theoretically, you know, the whole adoption thing is just, it's for the the best interests of the child. So if the child grows up and says, it's in my best interest to know who I am and where I came from and what my history is, there's somebody else telling us that, no, you don't actually need that information. Yeah. So the government yeah. is acting like big brother and saying, no, the agency is same. We don't, we don't think you should have that information. And they do have the law behind them because they'll claim, oh, well, we can't release anything identifying, but why the need for secrecy? Why the need for, and secrecy is a big one in cults. Why are these things, why is our identity a secret? Well, and especially when they try to pretend that it was because they made some sort of promise to our parent, except that there is no guarantee of anonymity in any of the paperwork, it, you no. know, because, because adoptions, except in some of the states that are kind of sketchy that will finalize adoptions within very brief windows, most of us spend some time period in foster care. Now, that might be, fo our foster parents may be our eventual adoptive parents, but we still spend, the majority of us, by law, some period of time between when we are given up for adoption and when that adoption is finalized. And during that time period, whether it's three days or in my case, it was I think over a year, because my adoption wasn't finalized till I was 13 months old. So during that time period, we're still legally the person on our birth certificate, on our original birth certificate. And that could be the case for our entire lives because there's no guarantee that we'll actually be adopted. Right. And our birth certificates would not be sealed if an adoption is not finalized. So if we stay in foster care, we'll have our original name and birth certificate. Yeah. So then when we lie and say that we're sealing this information away from the adoptee because it's in the adoptee's best interest and we made a promise to your mother, it, it's just that control of information. Yeah, and that promise they made is not legally binding. They might have made a verbal promise, but there is no legally binding um, way that they could keep this confidential forever. I mean, my parents had the names of my brother and I. They knew the names. They had copies of paperwork from their attorney with the names on them. <laughs> yes, I discovered after my adopted mom told me that she didn't know who my mother was that she had my mother's name and my grandmother's name. Be and they had to have them because when they went to court to finalize my adoption, they had to change my name from, they had to petition to change my name from my original to what they wanted me to be called. And yep. that's the case in the majority of yeah. adoption. So, so it's just- unless Our parents, I think there's this like a pact they had that said, act like you don't know. <laughs> well and it's and it's this whole narrative that was created i think by the adoption industry and you know sold to the public and people want to feel good because you know people don't join cults because they want to feel like crap i mean not in general <laughs> right and most people don't join cults because they want to harm themselves or other people. I yeah. mean, yes, there are some satanic cults. There are some supremacy groups and movements that I would consider to be solely in existence because they want to hurt people. But the majority of the time when a person joins a movement or a group, it's not because they want harm. They want to make yeah. the world a better place. Yeah, that's what we see in the vow. 
you know, they were, it was, they were trying to better themselves and better the world and um, positive intentions. They just didn't know that their, the leader was a sociopathic narcissist um, that was, you know, really good at hiding it and had a lot of enablers surrounding him. Well, and look at who was one of the early proponents of closed adoption, Georgia Tan. Oh, yeah. Speaking of sociopathic narcissists. <laughs> the the thing is, is that it started with this desire to, at a time in our history when we had just been through a world war and a depression, a massive pandemic that left millions of, of families with the deaths of loved ones. So we had economic hardship. We had a great deal of, of family loss. We had a lot of uncertainty in the culture. So it was at a time where there actually was a need for people to step up and take care of children who were legitimately without family to take care of them or legitimately without family with any kind of means. Which is not the context that we're in any longer. Absolutely not. And then we saw some people who saw a way to make money off of providing wealthy families who couldn't have children with the children of people who were either dead or could not take care of their of their kids. So we saw this movement of children from poor families or from no families to well-off families. And we saw a whole industry arise that catered to making this happen. And then judges got paid off. Doctors got paid off. Yeah. And they created this whole industry that used advertising and and played on people's emotions and created this whole mindset and yeah sorry <laughs> it's it's just one of those topics that whenever we start talking about it bec it becomes difficult to talk about because it's so infuriating that we shouldn't still be doing things this way. We're coming out of a pandemic, but it was not a pandemic that left millions of children without families. We're artificially creating a new uh, baby market by overturning Roe v. Wade. Absolutely. You know, yeah. they, they couldn't, they didn't, find a way to satisfy the need for that domestic supply so we're going to create a market for it and we're going to justify it using religious language either it's because god doesn't want you to murder babies or we're going to use it as cultural entitlement we're a same-sex couple and we deserve to have kids too now you can still have kids if you're a same-sex couple one of you contribute you you can co-parent with another same-sex couple and have children. You don't have to purchase somebody else's child. I, but the churches make it all about moral stuff. Yeah. And the other people, it's a cultural entitlement. Like, we deserve to be a parent. Yeah. I think the churches also are, I think there's a lot of saviorism going on. And then there's the... Um, we want to save that child's soul. And um, I think the Child Catchers, um, which came out about a decade ago, is a great read for anyone who wants to understand how adoption became a movement within the church. Yeah. And that's, you know, if we want to talk a little bit about you and I's background and how we come to this and and some of the guests that we'll have, we're going to talk about different aspects of you know cult-like belief structures and how adoption ties into that and we're going to have people who have different backgrounds talking we'll have 
I'm a gentleman who has a master's in religious studies and philosophy, who's going to talk about the scriptural basis. Oh, that should be really interesting. Yeah, we're going to have someone who's going to talk about like the cult of two and how you can get into a high control cult-like relationship, um, even with just one other person which ties into something that you do a lot of studying of, and that's narcissism. Yes, yes. My favorite narcissist um, educator is Dr. Romani, and she says that um, a narcissistic relationship is a cult of two. Yeah. And we're going to talk with another person whose background is similar to mine, but she's still a part of a church, whereas I've left organized religion i'm no longer a part of organized religion but i was in ministry of one sort or of another for almost 30 years so i have um, i have a diploma in ministerial studies i was um, i've completed my internship and all of the different steps that it would have taken for me to be a licensed minister should i have decided to stay in the church. I was a Sunday school teacher for over a decade. I was active in women's ministry, children's ministry. I helped run the um, youth ministry. So I was part of the Assemblies of God churches and the evangelical movement when the big push began in the churches to see adoption as a calling from God. So one of our guests, along with myself, we both um, have been active in churches and can re- and can talk about when those when that movement kind of kicked off in the churches. I lo- I look forward to that episode. It should be it should be interesting. And then you have your own experience working with one of the more I uh, what I consider a, mainstream traditional churches. Yeah, I, I was raised Presbyterian and Presbyterians, um, the PC, let's see, I'm trying to think of the letters they use. Anyway, it's considered a more progressive church. Um, they don't they don't preach adoption. Adoption was never mentioned in the church that I grew up in. And as an adult, I've been a member of several different mainstream churches, Lutheran, Catholic, um, Baptist, um, Presbyterian, you name it. I've been in it um, over the last 30 years. And now I'm a non-attender, but none of those churches that I was a member of had any real push on adoption, nor did they understand adoption type issues. So some of the pastors I used to work with, I used to actually be a business administrator at a Presbyterian church. Um, they they come to me still to this day to get any adoption information because it's not taught in um, in school for them, even though they most of them have PhDs. They didn't get any. They don't know how to help adopted parishioners, a lot of them. So I... it's, either, it's either the extreme, like what you were saying, where they were pushing everyone to adopt, or they're completely clueless that there's this whole uh, group of people that have, you know, needs in the church that relate to adoption. Yeah, it's really interesting because I, I my degree is in psychology, and we didn't really talk about adoption uh, in any of my training for my degree or for my counseling certificate and you know and so we're going to be talking about church aspects but then we also talk about you know the secular belief systems around adoption and I can also you know personally speak to that to some extent as somebody who um, considers themselves I'm non-binary and queer and that being part of the reason why I left the, you know, Pentecostal churches was because of the way that they were treating people like myself, you know, That's and also because of the way they treat people who present as female. That was also a big part of it. So there were a lot of different pieces. And 
so I feel like, you know, there are those of us who is as adoptees who identify as, you know, not being straight, who are expected automatically to be pro-adoption. And that's not, you know, I know lots and lots of queer adoptees who are not pro-adoption, who are pro-choice and who are not pro-adoption. So those people, you know, can also speak to the fact that they receive a lot of abuse. We receive a lot of abuse, even from other members of our own community. When we say, I don't support adoption. No. So it's not just, I think while right now it's the religious right that's the most visible in their culty kind of hardcore adoption pro-life narrative, this is not a far right issue. Liberal progressives are every bit as guilty of buying into the adoption narrative you yeah. see it you see it's it was divided on political lines i don't think either oh yeah it's exactly. everywhere it's our look society at, look at the people who want to prove that they're anti-racist by engaging in transracial adoption look at the celebrities who want to show how progressive and open-minded they are and how generous by engage and look at the the um, the cult like adoration that people shower on people like Angelina Jolie and a lot of these other celebrities because they adopted. Yeah, I really feel like there's this glamorization of adoption with the famous people for sure. Yeah, and and you've got your your Instagram influencers and all of these different people who are using their adoptees or their foster children and to make money yeah so there's definitely a lot of really sketchy behavior and yet these people have just adoring fans so one of the ones that i think you know we'll talk about quite a bit during this series is the idea that the ends justify the means. Yes. And that's definitely on the list of culty type characteristics. The ends just doesn't matter what ends you go to. It always justifies the means. And we see that every day with the cost of adoption and um, how far parents will go to get that one child out of, is it 20, 30, 35, that's available. I don't know. There's so many more adoptive parents than there are adoptees nowadays. Yeah, I think that's something like there's something like 50 prospective couples for every available. Yeah, something like that. Something and like it's even less if you factor in that the vast majority of prospective adoptive people don't want toddlers or older children yeah they'll use the argument well we don't want to leave them in foster care but they they're not interested in children who are in foster care and for the most part unless they're infants mm -hmm. so there's yeah there's definitely that theme that i think people will hear is that there's definitely in a that aspect of the ends justify the means we can lie to people we can steal children from people we can mislead people we can buy people we can change identities yeah we can seal away your documents we can deny you access for your for a hundred years in some states, uh, we can give you less than a week to change your mind. Anyone who's given birth knows that when you give birth, you're not thinking real straight in those days following. But we are asking people who give birth to sign away their parental rights before a child's birth or in the first hours after a child is born, or the first days. 
And it's insane. And that's where the ends justify the means. I mean, if, if our society didn't think it was okay, we wouldn't have all these laws that allow relinquishment 24 hours, 72 hours, 48 hours after birth. Oh, yeah. And in some states, we're talking about 15, 16, even 14-year-olds being allowed to sign away their parental rights and being considered as adults when they're doing it so that they have no recourse to to claim that they were coerced afterwards. Some states will appoint a guardian ad litem for a minor, but that person is usually chosen by the court. And most courts in this country have already demonstrated that they're in favor of removing these children from their families. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm really looking forward to the conversations that we're going to be having with people. I hope that the listeners find them interesting as well. I think there's so much that we could talk about. Oh, yeah. We could go on tangents for weeks. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we we tried to do this recording the other day, and we ended up talking for three hours. (laughs) We probably should have recorded some of it. Yeah, it was pretty good. (laughs) Yeah, because now that we're talking about it, we're like, well, we talked about this stuff already. We didn't record (laughs) it, but we talked about it. There's just so much to say. I mean, the more I read the bite model list, um, hopefully you'll put that in the show notes. Yes. Um, The more you're just like, check, 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 check. What do you think of adoption? It's just, it's crazy. Yeah. And it's funny that nobody else is really talking about this. You know, I posted that TikTok for National Adoption Month and it was titled Adoption is a Little Bit Culty. And I did get a lot of responses from other adoptees who were like, yeah, it's more than a little bit culty. It's a lot culty. (laughs) But, you know, I didn't, nobody really talks about it. I think there's one person online who's written a series, Rebecca Dragon. It's really good. I highly recommend it. But yeah, these conversations probably happen in adoptee support groups or just amongst other adoptees, but we haven't really done any kind of series or done anything publicly to discuss the parallels. (laughs) Lynn and I look forward to uh, people joining us as we continue these conversations with other adoptees and, you know, with people who have insights into the whole culty aspects of adoption and how those, those belief systems affect the way we legislate adoption and the way that we do adoption in this country. So thank you so much to everyone who stuck with us until this point. Thank you. And uh, we will be back soon. Yep. Look forward to it. Yeah. Thanks, Lynn. Welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks, everybody.